News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. The city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Professor Christina Greer and Katie Ona. And let's jump right in with just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York. Hi, Katie. Hey, Harry. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has convened a new grand jury taking evidence about Donald Trump's $140,000 hush money payment to Stormy Daniels and the question of whether he violated election law by falsifying records to hide that payout from voters in the 2016 presidential election. Any criminal case there would likely hinge on the testimony of Michael Cohen, Trump's thuggish former attorney who's recast himself as a member of the quote-unquote resistance, and who pleaded guilty in 2018 to federal campaign finance charges involving the same payments. At a charged hearing on Monday in Albany, lawmakers insisted that they wouldn't make any further changes to the bail law without hard numbers to back up need for those changes. This is as police officials and Republicans argued that the issue— Uh, had holes in the available data, and it was a question of who would have to prove what. The law has already been revised repeatedly since it was first passed in 2019. In one notable exchange, Assemblymember Ed Bronstein of Queens asked police officials focused on a couple thousand chronic offenders what would help with recidivism and got literally no answer. And while the mayor keeps stressing that 1,700 or almost 2,000 people who re-offended in 2022 after being arrested— In fact, the NYPD is well aware that the entire population of high-risk people is much, much larger than 2,000, and that there's no way to know in advance which people in that larger group will re-offend and thus be part of that year's, quote, almost 2,000 people. The Albany standoff came just before Governor Kathy Hochul will introduce her budget on Wednesday, beginning what's known as the Big Ugly, in which most of the state's lawmaking gets done. In the meantime, Hochul will be in Manhattan later on Tuesday, along with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, New York City Mayor Adams, and the rest of the state's heavy hitters as President Joe Biden visits New York City to tout a new $292 million federal grant to help pay for the concrete casings for two crucial and long-delayed new tunnels under the Hudson River that are a key part of the $16 billion-plus gateway project, the $16 billion and change. I, I don't know all the rest of the numbers. It's a lot of dough when 292 million is basically a rounding error. Yeah. Uh, so so the luminaries will be gathered not very far from where the single male asylum seekers are now camping out outside of the Watson Hotel in Midtown where they'd been staying after many of them refused starting on Monday to move to a new quote unquote herc at the uh, cruise terminal in Red Hook in Brooklyn. Um the idea of the city had been to turn over the hotel rooms to asylum-seeking families um, as the city races to find a shelter for the migrants who've arrived in the last year and have really stressed the existing shelter system. The Adams administration, which has continually called on the federal government to provide more support, strongly suggested that what was happening at the Watson was actually coming not from asylum seekers, uh, but from lefty activists and politicians looking to unfairly, in their view, expand the city's unique right to shelter law. Finally, the New York Times recapped uh, this week the great outmigration in which the city's black population has now declined by nearly 10% over the last two decades, 
reducing the city's share of black New Yorkers from about one in four to about one in five. In just the decade from 2010 to 2020, the number of black children and teenagers in the city declined by nearly 20%. So we've got lots to discuss, and that's not counting the mayor rolling out a new podcast to go along with his newsletter. The Get (laughs) Stuff Done pod uh, will be twice a month, it says, uh, but its debut was like a 25-minute thing that was just highlights from the nearly 90-minute State of the City speech he delivered last week. Uh, Adams, who sat down with Katie in December for an interview about year one of his administration for the city, continues to have, and has so far declined, a standing invitation to join FAQNYC anytime for a substantial two-way conversation about how things are going and what is and what isn't getting done in his city and why. Chrissy, before we get to the right now news, I just wanted to ask, what do you make of New York having an unprecedented moment of black political power at the same time that the black population in the state and especially the city, of course, is declining? Um, so, yeah, I think about this a lot, guys. We I always talk about descriptive and substantive representation. So we're at a moment right now where descriptively we have, as you laid out, Harry, quite a bit of black leadership in all high levels of the city and even, you know, in Albany. But we have to ask ourselves, like, what are black people getting? So, you know, is our housing stock improving? I don't think so, because we know that gentrification is wild in, I would argue, all five boroughs, even Staten Island and historically black communities. You know, do we have better outcomes with education? No, because we can look at the Upper West Side and see how You know, those parents are acting like they're from 1964 Mississippi when we talk about integrating schools. What about policing? No, even with a Black police chief and a Black mayor who's a former police officer, we know that outcomes for Black people interacting with the NYPD have not been better. And we know that the payouts still exist with, you know, the NYPD having to pay families for their bad behaviors. So the the larger questions are institutional And when you have the mayor saying that he's going to disinvest in, you know, you know, I'm still mad about this New York Public Library stuff because so many Black children use the New York Public Library system after school. You know, you have to ask yourself, well, what are the specific policies? At a certain point in time, we have to have, I think, sometimes targeted policies because we can't always do this Obama level, you know, all tides lift all boats. They don't. The structural racism and institutional racism hasn't been equitable in the past. So like, I don't think present day policies are going to sort of do a widespread sort of lift up of everyone. As far as the out migration, I mean, this, this trend has been happening in cities, you know, across the country because places like Atlanta, you know, they're seeing an increased population because it's cheaper. The weather's warmer. I mean, the same way, you know, certain communities go to Boca and down to Florida, other black communities are, we're still going to cities because we, we know it's not safe for us to live outside of cities by and large. So we still go to cities. We just go to cities that are smaller and more Southern. A lot of Black people still have relatives that are in the South. So there's a built-in community or they're going to communities where there are other Black people. I mean, I think a lot of non-Black people or non-people of color don't fully grasp the idea that like it is necessary for a lot of Black people to live around other Black people. 
not just for your psychological well-being, but also for your safety. So we've always seen it. We call it like ethnic enclaves. And, you know, it's like, this is why Italians are in parts of Brooklyn and, you know, Irish communities or wherever and Jewish communities or whatever. But like for Black people, it is like low-key, like a safety and numbers situation. So it's not surprising that Black people go to the South where the vast majority of Black people are uh, in this country and particular cities. So just, just a quick follow-up here for New York City. And, you know, the future is always fuzzy. Predictions are complicated. But but does this seem to you like potentially we've hit some peak point of uh, Black political power here? And what are the implications of that, if so? Yeah, I mean, well, we've had a Black lieutenant governor. We've had a Black governor, not elected, but appointed, but a governor nonetheless. Um, you know, we've got AG. We've got now our second mayor. I mean, I think, you know, when we, I did a paper a long time in grad school. I wish I would have published it. I need to find it someplace on some like floppy disk. But I essentially was doing like a game theoretic analysis that I followed up with a statistic analysis where I found statistically significant that Black people actually get more when they have a non-Black elected, which blew my mind, right? Because obviously that's counterintuitive to what you would think happens. But I, in my analysis, I found that Black, I think it was I was looking at members of Congress, they have to cater to their white populations to keep their jobs. So like the smaller white population in their particular district um, and black people end up getting sort of leftovers, whereas with like a white representative in certain, you know, certain circumstances, the white representative actually has to pay attention to the black representatives because they make up the percentage of a win, usually in a primary, because the primary is the election. So I think about that paper often just because. I do wonder what specifically do Black people get because we know the constraints of Black electeds and they tend to have to cater to A, their donor base, which tends not to be Black, and B, sort of the demands of white people who get really nervous when there's a Black elected because they fear that Black electeds are going to give things to Black people. So I feel like the pendulum sometimes swings in the other direction where it's like, well, you don't want to seem like you're being, you know, you're giving favoritism to Black people. So Black people end up getting less. So I think about that a lot just because I don't really care about descriptive representation if black people aren't going to get stuff. Like, you know, we know that there are lots of people who look like me who don't care for black people. Um, Not saying that that's our current day situation in New York, but I do think that there is this nervousness sometimes among black electeds to make sure they don't seem like they're, they're catering too much to the black population. So. Black people end up getting less under a Black representative. With this particular mayor, I mean, you know, once you're, once you've passed number one or number two, for a lot of cities, it gets less exciting and sort of less um, historic. I don't know what our next mayor looks like. I don't know, like, I'm at this moment now as a political scientist where I'm just, I'm still really worried. Like, I still feel like this Democratic Republic experiment is on the precipice. So I'm not exactly sure, you know, this is like the first time where my, my, my spidey senses, my political spidey senses are just sort of like, we need to take a beat. I'm not sure what kind of mayor we get after Eric Adams. I think Eric Adams gets a second term if he wants it. Um, but I don't know where we go after that. Cause I don't know what the country looks like after that. Um, and we still have like with Biden, who's, you know, he's here, he's, throwing some money to cities. But like, as we sort of think about a migrant crisis 
and I don't want to use that term. Let me take that back. As we think about sort of the the steady flow of migrants into the city, because it's it's not a crisis. We got the money. We just don't want to use it to help people. Um, but as we think about sort of integrating immigrants and like the capacity of Democrats on paper versus in practice, like a lot of Democrats like helping people in theory, but they don't want them in their communities and their schools. So I think Adams understands that too. So his like conservative dare I say, Republican-sounding rhetoric seems harsh, but I'm like, yeah, but I know white liberals. Like, they never say it, but he's saying what they're thinking. So here we are. Um, so that's, I, I think that's the piece where I'm just, I'm at like a crossroads where I just, I, I feel like I need to take a beat and just kind of think about it. So speaking of that crossroads and where we are, Katie, there's... Mm-hmm been for many months now, and as we've had something like uh, 40,000 asylum seekers who've arrived in the last year, 1,600 in the last week, uh, two-thirds of them are still being sheltered by the city, either in Mm -hmm. the city's shelter system or in these hercs. And now we're getting this pretty powerful pushback to this new short-term herc that's only supposed to be up for 12 weeks or so. Yeah, But the terminal in Brooklyn, the city reported, you know, you had people there like it's much harder to get to work with people who aren't allowed to work, but, uh, you know, need to find uh, money to support themselves as compared to being in Manhattan. That like it's beds right next to each other that are really uncomfortable. It's cold. The showers are far away. All this stuff which is all at the edges of this right to shelter fight. No one is being forced to go to this uh, place. Everyone is welcome to go to the horrible congregate shelters. The idea had been to clear this hotel, the Watson 57th, I think Mm -hmm. for families, actually for asylum seeking families and to, to move out the, the single men into plainly less comfortable and, uh, conveniently located, facilities and there's all this pushback the adams administration read which the post carries in full today it's like their front page and everything but nothing backing it up is like uh this is the activists by which i think they mean like south bronx mutual aid and organizations Mm -hmm. like that it's hard to separate in fact i think activists from the people who are just working with these asylum seekers and are trying to give them voice at the same time they're like signs outside the watson about uh about like a, a fair cause eviction and like other not directly related issues. This all gets hard to untangle and it actually creates a tension between existing New Yorkers and people who've newly arrived in the city. Adams keeps pointing at Biden, who he's going to be with later today and saying we need more help from, from the feds. But I just like your perspective, politically speaking, on how the mayor is handling this set of issues to this point and as he's become in some ways the most uh, prominent democrat in the country you could argue talking regularly about them yeah um and it's interesting you know you mentioned how yeah the the line from city hall is these advocates are you know muddying the waters they're telling the asylum seekers things and uh, oh they're they're kind of creating this what started Sunday evening is almost like a protest. Um, my colleague, Gabriel Pobletti, our colleague, you know, spoke to someone who 
a 21-year-old from Venezuela who was sent from the Watson to this Herc uh, in Red Hook and then turned back around like as, as soon as he saw what it looked like. And a lot of these people, they're on WhatsApp groups. They're kind of doing – the migrants themselves are kind of doing their own organizing as any natural group of people do. You know, you you kind of travel together. You arrive together. Obviously, you're going to communicate with each other. But Mayor Adams has also asked for so much help, and the city relies so heavily on CBOs and other nonprofits to work with these – not just with migrants, right? I mean, where would the city be without – homeless service providers and nonprofits that they pay a lot of money to to house people to provide services that the city points out will also be offered at this Hurricane Red Hook. It's the same services just in a congregate setting. So there is that balance, and that is what happens where there's going to be a problem. You, you are encouraging groups to work with you. You're encouraging groups to support the migrants. You're encouraging the whole, whole city to support them. But then when that support maybe comes in a form that you don't like, then that's a problem for the mayor. Um, he There was a press tour a few months ago at a facility uh, on the Upper West. I guess it was, or maybe that's Hell's Kitchen. I'm the West Side. Sorry, I'm from Queens. Uh, over there uh, in the 50s. And you had these organizations that are working with everyone, but also they're also communicating with people and saying, this is what you have the right to in New York City. And when people are accustomed to a certain location, certain facilities, they don't want to move to a tent. Um, City Hall has taken issue with some people, very limited people, kind of comparing them to concentration camps, obviously, um, two separate things. Um, But as Mayor Adams is, as you said, the most prominent Democrat in the the nation's largest city handling this, um, he's asked for more support. I mean, and then I, I think, too, it's sort of the circular thinking, too. When people criticize him, he says, well, what are you doing for me? What are you doing for us? Instead of criticizing us, why don't you ask for support? I think that support would come in the term, I guess, with just money. But unless you're going to suddenly build with all that money, tons and tons and tons of apartments. I don't know. The migrant, the migrants who are here are just exacerbating the huge issue that's already existed in New York City, which is a lack of affordable housing. So it's, just, I don't know. And, and he wants support from groups. And then when the groups provide the support and it doesn't look exactly the way he wants it to, that's when there's an issue. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And, you know, and, and as we reported and a lot of people reported, you know, the, the man that my, our colleague spoke to, his name is Isaac from Venezuela. He cleans at a school in the Upper West Side from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Um, to get there from Red Hook would be much more complicated than a, than a 10 minute subway ride from where he currently is. Christina, the, the mayor, you know, talked about uh, what Jesus would do in terms of welcoming people. He's talked about uh, uh, New York's right to shelter and New York as a sanctuary city and a welcoming city. And he's also said, like, the inn is full. Mm-hmm. We can't uh, we can't take more of this. We can't do it on our own. He's appealed directly now. He held off until after the election to Kathy Hochul for help in, like, finding people shelter and support elsewhere in the state. He's pressed uh, the Biden administration for help. He said, we need some uh, czar to deal with all this. And people said, uh, uh, wait a minute, is, isn't that Kamala Harris? And he said, but I just mean someone I could pick up the phone and call who's actually administratively in charge of this. So he's scrambling and I think straddling uh, rhetorically and otherwise to try and answer this. And of course, as the executive, he has to actually implement plans where mm-hmm. lots of the people who are criticizing these 
don't. Uh, at the same time, you know, when you have like the local council members saying, how come I can't visit this facility mm-hmm. and see it if it's all okay? Um, plainly, you know, something is, is, is breaking down. Like, yeah. I, I just like your take on how the mayor is doing with this, um, how New Yorkers as uh, collectively are with stepping up, with paying attention, with being aware if there aren't actually lots of new kids in, in your kid's school, um, or you're not necessarily right by one of these hotels in Midtown and seeing it. It actually seems to me that while there are definitely people stepping up and uh, extending their best selves, that in fascinating ways, this big influx of people has been a, a, a background or abstract issue for a lot of New Yorkers, yeah. including white progressives you mentioned and others who are sort of supportive in principle, but maybe less so in practice. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I'm on a group chat with my students. You know, we started this during the pandemic so we can just share articles and kind of have more communication and more community in between classes. And one of these hotels where immigrants are are now camping outside in tents is right near the Fordham Lincoln Center campus. And, you know, one student said, this is literally in our backyard and we never saw it. It's, it's two blocks away from uh, two avenues over from where the students are. And so, you know, that really stuck out to me in the sense that it is so visible, but invisible for a lot of New Yorkers. I think that, you know, what Eric Adams is frustratingly trying to explain to people is that, you know, there are limitations on the power of a mayor because there are limitations on his or her budget. And he's beholden to Kathy Hochul and Joe Biden. Kathy Hochul is beholden to Joe Biden. And so this idea of we don't have the money and the resources, yet we stay finding money and resources for war, for police officers. I mean, in seconds, we can find billions upon billions of dollars. And so, you know, when you have Kamala Harris, the child of not one, but two immigrants going to the border and telling people don't come, this has always been the story of America. You know, shout out to the Tenement Museum. Proud trustee. Um, But, you know, what the Tenement Museum tells us is that, like, this country and this city has never been welcoming to immigrants. Initially, we sort of, you know, begrudgingly incorporate people. And that's, like, the beauty of New York City and the beauty of America. It's like, we sometimes, we somehow always figure it out. But sadly, it's never welcoming with open arms. Um, You know, if we think about the Statue of Liberty as a detention center, first for, you know, Chinese immigrant women, um, and then loads of other groups to say nothing of the groups that didn't go through uh, Ellis Island. So I I just think that the narrative of this city and the narrative of this country is being one that's welcoming to immigrants has never been true. So we've always had this tension with mayors saying like, it's too many of them. You know, it's like, you remember Robert Moses hated the new Jews, even as a Jewish man himself, you know, the, the bourgeois, Black folks, you know, Black American and Caribbeans, they didn't like, you know, the great migration Black people coming to Harlem and Brooklyn. I mean, like, this is the story of, like, you know, settled Italians are like, ugh, these new Italians, like, you know, why don't they speak English? Like Ron DeSantis' grandparents who didn't speak English. You know, like, so we know that this story is the story of America, yet every time new immigrants come, we're like, what do we do with them? Oh, my gosh. And it's like, well, we have to figure it out. And so, you know, this is why we elect people to be in leadership. You know, like, yes, I think we can, you know, we can provide ideas and we can keep our foot on the gas and stay interested. But at the same time, it's like, Eric, Kathy, Joey, like, this is what, this is what the job is. Figure it out. Like, I like Joey. 
That's fun. Joey Biden. Joey B. Joey, Joey B. B. <laughs> from the Big D. I love Delaware. Low key. I love Please Delaware. Please don't say Big D. <laughs> right? He's from the when Big D. When talking about the D. Joey B. <laughs> Joey B. From the D. Um, <laughs> you Sorry, have not me. had my coffee. We might have to take this part out. Sorry, President Biden. No, keep Biden. it in. Keep it in. <laughs> Sorry, President Biden. So, so speaking of uh, Joey's and of loathsome outsiders, the one group I think we can perhaps all agree. Um, no, no disrespect to your family there, Christina. However, people from uh, the Empire State Building, <laughs> the Empire State Building, got lit up in green. White for the Philadelphia Eagles. Fly um, Eagles, fly. No, I don't. I don't like <laughs> should, should 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 we evict the Empire State Building? I think is the only. I mean, listen. Any tax exempt status they had will be thoroughly reviewed. That, I, I was so thinking sure about that by someone in in the actuary office. I mean, listen. I do. I like when teams support each other. You know, I have lots I of don't. issues with the NFL. I have lots of issues with Roger Goodell. I have lots, lots of issues with how they're treating Colin Kaepernick. Hey, shout out to the 49ers. Nothing good is going to come going to come by you until you treat Colin Kaepernick right. And, you know, how they treat CTE and, you know, they're a terrible league in an organization. However, we got to deal with the cards we have. So, if you choose to support sporting teams, I like the fact that, you know, with DeMar from the Bills and his, you know, medical situation that sort of I feel like we had so many NFL teams from across the country supporting him and kind of galvanizing by him. So it feels like this year we're in a slightly more supportive mode. I understand. Listen, I'm a Giants, Eagles, Ravens fan. So you know my sports what? allegiances are that's, just all I mean I gotta say that's cr- I don't even follow that's the sin. NFL. You you know that that's I'm crazy. crazy. You know I like the the Phillies, the Mets and the Cubbies and the Orioles. Like no, I just like, I, I like, the teams like the three cities. teams. What I kind of polyamorous can't. shit is this? <laughs> I, I can answer this. Christina is, is like a good person and an emblem of the future we should have. But in this present, tribal hatred, as expressed <laughs> through sporting teams, it's, is it's very important because okay. it actually is like a safety vent against other much more serious tribal hatreds. So New Yorkers who want to just get out all of their nasty feelings about, say, the Eagles, God bless, go right ahead. If we could all just love all the teams, that'd be awesome. But in the meantime, and for, for, for like grouchy men of a certain age, let's say like 15 to 80, um, having having sports to like vent all your feelings in as opposed to other things is not, I'm not saying stick to sports. And obviously, as with Kaepernick and many other things, this spills over, but I, I actually think there's something very healthy if you don't have like soccer hooligans and having people get out like whatever nasty feelings they have in bizarro form in just uh, loathing some other city. And if it happens to be the utterly loathsome Philadelphia Eagles and their lunatic fans throwing batteries, snowballs at Santa Claus, so much the healthier. I mean, well, and I, I think we should just sort of also, you know, recognize that Super Bowl Sunday is one of the largest domestic violence days in the country. Because there's a lot of drinking and betting and frustrations. So hopefully, um, you know, people can use the resources that are available to um, to sort of mitigate that. Um, I hear what you're saying, you know, as because I've lived in lots of different cities and I, I appreciate the sports teams that have, you know, been in those cities. I, I, I think that the light in the Empire State Building 
was <laughs> probably inappropriate to 99% of New Yorkers, but I kind of I kind of liked it just a little bit. Well, the thing is the thing that got lost, it, they also lit it up for the Chiefs. Yeah. But because New York City and just Philly, we were like natural. And again, I don't even follow football, but I, I follow baseball and I, I've met Phillies fans before. So therefore I have to greatly dislike. I, I've had better experiences in Philadelphia since I had a famously horrible time in Philadelphia in like 2008. Right. Which I can't, you know, it's a horrific experience. But yeah, that. But that's what they do. They and they, they, I think the trolling, you know, whoever's running the social media for the Empire State Building. I saw a TikTok video someone shared on Instagram where I see TikToks of them just delighting in the hatred. Um, it's I find it a little bit disrespectful. And like again, I don't follow football. Um, Is it a PR will, stunt though? Probably. Just, I mean, you know, we so all know the building's can... there. I mean, I've never actually been to the Empire State Building, <laughs> like most. I have. It, I, it's. What's and when there? you do the, when you you go to the, the observation deck, this was years ago, and you know if you pay to get the little um, the earphones, they have the worst actor who's like Fat Tony the Italian. It's like they I I hope that they've changed it by now because he's like, hey, if you look over there, there's Central oh, Park. I don't like oh my that. goodness, it's terrible. It's I don't like that. Terrible. Uh, but it's sort of what a what a tourist would think a New Yorker would sound like and would get out of here. Yeah. The Johnny Pump voice. A friend calls it the Johnny Pump voice. Forget about actor. it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a horrible, horrible. Recording. No, they should have known that New York's hatred for Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, look, look. I mean, look, I can't name a building in Philadelphia that lights up, but would they ever do it for us? That's the what? problem. What? I can't what? name one building in Philadelphia. William Penn. I was a little girl. I had what a is that? Free William Penn. Is that an insurance button. company? <laughs> Oh my God, William Penn. I know the Liberty Bell. I have to say, I went to Philly for a friend's wedding a year ago and I didn't realize, but it must have been some, it was some anniversary of a Revolutionary War thing. Okay. Everyone where I was staying was dressed up in the reenactors. And I thought it was an every week thing. And then I started seeing the the, the Eagles jersey. So, but yeah, Philly would not do it for us. They are, the thing is, as a native New Yorker, right? The hatred everyone feels for New York City from other cities out of jealousy. You know, they would never show the, like I always say in New York City, you have, oh, it's Indianapolis Colts bar. Oh, it's this bar. We are so accepting of other people's college sports fandoms, team fandoms. You don't see that in other cities. So That's everyone because can, they, yeah, don't have the everyone, they don't have the people. And we don't <laughs> yeah. care about these places fundamentally. I know, I know this has been FAQ, FU Philly episode. However, no, it's, However, it's like, eh, it's fine. I, I the, 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 like, like being, being this gigantic city that, that is much larger than any other American city or metro region, right? There is like, there's tourists, there's people from all over the world, there's people from Ohio here. There's transplants. Yeah. Absolutely. And consequently, it's like, yeah, you can have your bar, you can have your thing. And naturally, this builds up resentment and hatred in, in sad little small second-rate cities like, uh, for instance, Boston, um, that have very strong <laughs> feelings about New York and are basic eh, whatever is uh, only only feeds those fires. And I do right. think there's something healthy about that. We had a terrible mayor who was a Red Sox fan, and eh. we had we had 20 years of Boston yeah. mayors. Because it, I feel like if if cities were dogs, Boston would be a chihuahua. Like just kind Not of an like Irish always... setter. <laughs> Listen, I a spent time bit, in Boston. A little bit racist. I one. mean, 
<laughs> my dog's a little bit racist. It um, always barks. <laughs> I feel like Boston gets such like a horrible, horrible rap of being like the most racist. I don't know. I like everyone. I haven't been there I'm since insane. high school. I'm like, I think New York is as racist as Boston. It's just a different kind of racism. It's. I just, haven't been like, to Boston in a long time. My sister, we went to visit college there when I was in high school. I mm. went, you know, I went to college there and. I, I don't know. I No one agrees with me, but I'm like, I know what racism, racism feels like, and I feel it in New York. Maybe it's because I've been in New York much longer than I was in Boston, but I don't know. Um, okay, so shout out to the Philadelphia Eagles. That's who I'm rooting for. Oh, yeah, I was born in I was born in New York, so I like I I do boo. you know love and respect New York sports teams. But I was raised in Philly, and so I gotta support my Eagles. And and listen, hey, it's a win win. I got two black quarterbacks in the Super Bowl, so like I really I'm happy either way. Because in my family, we grew up, it's like if you had a black quarterback or a black coach, back then it was, you know, obviously still hardly any black coaches. But like, if you had a black quarterback, that was who we rooted for. So I'm rooting for the Eagles because I was raised in Philly. But like, honestly, you got two black quarterbacks. I can't lose. Just saying, rooting professional athletes are awesome. Athletic competition, really cool. Like rooting for sports teams is like rooting for Goldman Sachs. It's just or, or, or whatever bank. It's insane. Uh, just on the face of it, insane. Like you, you are pulling for just uh, just money and money that yeah. that you know, as older New Yorkers, Brooklyn Dodgers, nostalgics can can vouch. But we all know, like, doesn't care about your your city except for what it can get in tax benefits uh, or anything else. Um, Harry, you're a Dodger. Out fan. Out How old Dodgers. are you, man? You're, you you remember the Brooklyn <laughs> <Right>. Dodgers? <laughs> Harry, we're gonna find out Harry's the ghost from that ghost show that you were talking about <laughs> last week, Katie. <laughs> he was at the field. <laughs> Harry is like he's the bridge. I always think this is why he's you know one of my favorite New Yorkers. Even before we became friends, it's like Harry feels like the bridge between like old New York and old <laughs> journalism and like new New York. Yeah. Like he's he's the linchpin. The Brooklyn Nets in that arena was actually a really big moment for for ending the old New York and like as the D's and those generations Ugh, died Jason, out. You terrible, terrible man. You terrible, terrible man. I will go to the grave not liking Jay-Z because of that that nonsense that he pulled with that monstrosity that is Barclays. I'm sorry, go ahead. So, so I've reached out to Just Blaze about this. We're going to drop the sample here. It's from King Pleasure. I think it's from 1947. It is perfect. It would only work for Jay-Z, but Jay-Z is a sucker who has upset Christina Greer, does not listen to this podcast, and consequently is going to miss out on this Jay-Z only perfect sample. And with that, we are out. Make everything go real crazy over Jay-Z. Make everything go real crazy over Jay-Z. Play anything cool for me. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were Katie Honan, Christina Greer, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. 
I'm our engineer, Adam Kamara. Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.